Being drafted in a professional sport sounds like an amazing opportunity, but does it live up to what we expected? And we hear about player trades in the media all the time, but as a player, how does the trade really go down? Today, professional women's soccer player Danny Weatherholt shares some stories on her journey playing professional soccer and how she uses her platform to help the next generation of youth soccer players. Let's do this. Welcome to Finding Small Wins. My name is Adam Oyakino, and I am a physical therapist in the NBA and a former performance coach in Major League Soccer and the National Women's Soccer League. The purpose of this show is to have conversations that pull back the curtain on sports. We're here to learn how we can upgrade health and performance and shed some light on how industry leaders and experts are finding the small wins that help them along the way. Our conversation today is with Danny Weatherholt. Danny is a professional women's soccer player for Angel City FC in Los Angeles and previously of OL Reign in Seattle, Orlando Pride, and Melbourne Victory in Australia. She is an incredibly kind soul who is constantly giving back to young women and young athletes. Danny is an advocate for Voice in Sport, a community of women and girls in sport that provides educational resources and mentorship for women of all ages. She also consistently participates in Football for Her, an organization that provides a safe space for all players to play soccer. Danny is about to enter her eighth professional season. Today, she shares with us a player's perspective on some of the behind-the-scenes processes with agents and front offices when players are traded, how medical and performance practitioners can best care for players, and some insight into the challenges pro athletes face when battling back from injuries. Now, let's jump into this conversation with Danny Weatherholt. If there was a book about your life right now, what would the title of that book be? I think Discovering. Why? It's so funny. I think you go through different phases of your life where like, I know exactly who I am. And then something happens and you go through change. And I just think I love that I'm really curious and always trying to learn. So I think discovering is kind of like an ongoing title of my self-development as well as adventuring the world and meeting new people. I like that. And I would imagine there's some curiosity in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Travel, mm-hmm. see the world. Because you did that in Australia too. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so chapter one of your book, let's go back to, let's say the amateur level, right? Because college now is kind of considered like the amateur mm-hmm. sport, to being drafted in NWSL. Mm-hmm. What was that journey like for you? The title of that book or what was that journey like? No, no not the title <laughs> of the book. I mean, do you want to give us the title of that book? I'd say I was like wide-eyed and like in awe. Okay. Like I think my whole life I had looked up to the national team players and then I got drafted to Orlando that had Alex Morgan and all these big time players. So I think I showed up in the environment, like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm excited to learn from these great players. I'm just going to be a sponge. And then I just quickly realized that like the difference between an Alex Morgan and myself was a mentality. Um, she had her niche. She knew what she was really good at and she honed in on that. So I think for me, I would quickly realize, oh, I need to figure out what makes me me. Well, what was that? I think for me, that's a great question. I'm always, like as a midfielder, I got labeled the connector. And I think the way I connect with people and the way I connect with the community, that is always what has made me feel the most fulfilled. So, um, yeah, I would say connection, whether that's teammate with staff members, the community, like that's always been what, what makes me me. Okay. And then was the dream always to be a pro soccer player? So it's funny, like in my yearbooks growing up, I always wrote like professional athlete. So I think because I didn't have like a professional woman seem to look up to, I think as a kid, I couldn't conceptualize being a professional soccer player, like for Angel City, because there wasn't a professional league. So I just put professional athlete. I played baseball with my brothers, soccer, golf, but soccer was actually the sport I was the least talented at. Um, And I think that's why I loved it. I could like, I was so passionate about learning and growing within the sport. 
and like so weird you play a sport with your feet, like hand dye my whole life. <laughs> and like no one in my family played soccer. So it was kind of my niche. And that's kind of what draw, like drew me to it. What were the other sports you played, you said? Um, my dad was an avid golfer and he was like, so much so like he became a marshal at the golf course so we could all play free because golf's an expensive sport. So um, played golf for my dad, which now I'm so grateful for because it's like such a great skill set to have, especially as a woman. Um, and then softball like my whole life because I played baseball with my brothers. So. so when did you actually get serious about soccer? So when I was, I joined my first club team when I was nine years old, but I was playing soccer at like six or seven. Um, but I played all three all the way till I was 18. So like my senior year of high school. And then I went to college for soccer. And Santa Clara was where you went? Yeah. So then the matching that you alluded to, like the time at right when you got to Orlando. Mm -hmm. And then from Santa Clara, yeah. right, the facilities, the setup, mm -hmm. the dream, the reality. Did the reality of being a pro soccer player match the dream or the expectations you had? So interestingly enough, at Santa Clara, it kind of, for being an elite program, its amenities were not where they needed to be because it was a smaller school, like... Jesuit Catholic, soccer was the only sports team really there besides basketball back in the day with Steve Nash. But, um, but it was really the only sport. So we didn't have all the amenities and whatnot. It was kind of its charm until we were about to like lose our program and lose our head coach. And like someone donated 7 million specifically to women's soccer. So they redid everything. Like I'm talking a beautiful stadium, locker room. So that, I got that my senior year. So going from that to Orlando, um, it was a big drop off. Because, you know, Orlando was an expansion team that year and they were coming in like, we're going to do it better. Um, and the facilities, like a locker room, I think, I don't know if you ever got to experience them, were like a convenient shack, <laughs> like a shed. Um, but it was kind of like I stepped into that environment and everyone just felt comfortable in it. So I was like, oh, this is normal. Um, but the benefit of being at Orlando was everyone had their own housing, which every other club did um, host families. So like, I felt grateful that, you know, I had my own housing and I wasn't with a host family. So you guys picked up the wins where you found them. I got you. And so, so speaking of those wins, where like, one thing like I, I didn't realize about it, about your journey to how you got to Orlando, but, like you spent all your time on the West Coast. Yeah. And then you literally go to the complete opposite end of the country. Yeah. Not only as, like, how old at the time were you? I think when, when I graduated, I was 20, 21. So at 20, 20, you're 20, 21 years old, you're leaving everything you know on the West Coast, going to completely, have you ever been to Orlando before? Mm -mm. So how, okay, so I want to hear about this. I'm curious, <laughs> what, was, what was that adventure like for you? Uh, going from a place of comfort, West Coast, California, a lot of what you know, to Orlando where there's no mountains, it's humid, it's totally different environment. And speaking of that, like you go from being drafted, which is oh my God, this is the best moment of my life. Like, I'm a pro, so to speak. And then you get a call and it's like, we're so excited to have you into our preseason. So basically you don't have a contract. You have to show up and earn it. And then come to find out there's eight other girls competing for three spots. So not only was it the three players they drafted, but other people from outside, other teams were coming in for those contracts. I did not know that. Yeah. So it's like, you're flying across the country and you do not have a contract. So it was like, I brought like one suitcase, like didn't decorate my apartment. I was in preseason for a few months then I finally got my contract and I was like, okay, I can actually settle now. <laughs> but like, um, thankfully I had done a lot of traveling with like youth national team camps and my family and I had a really good relationship and I was very independent growing up. I'm really glad they gave me that autonomy. So I was like really excited for the adventure. Um, but yeah, not having the certainty of like a contract was nerve wracking, but it was also like kind of an exciting journey. And like, 
I really want this. I'm going to go after it. Yeah, and you certainly did because now what you've just finished your seventh year. Yeah, seventh year going on to eight. So you certainly have earned that. Like, like there's a something like the story, like the undrafted, like in yeah. the NBA. Like there's mm-hmm. those that are undrafted and they go and they make a name for himself. I would like put you in that same camp. But like technically you were drafted, but not knowing that you technically didn't have a contract, kind of puts you in that category. Like. That's kudos to you on that one. Yeah, thank you. And even so, they were like, oh, you're a fourth round draft pick because there's only four rounds. But then you think about it, you're like, only four rounds in 352 schools. I'm like, that's actually, that's a lot. Like, that's an, that's an accomplishment. Absolutely. <laughs> but at the time, I was like, I'm a fourth rounder. Like, they grabbed two in the first round, you know, but here we are. Here we are. Yeah. So, that's, so that rounds out chapter one. Okay. All right, so chapter one, we're in Orlando. How many years were you in Orlando? Four years. Okay. So four seasons in Orlando, primarily central midfielder. Mm-hmm. Coming off the bench, starting, kind of a mix of both? Yeah, so my rookie year, I actually played, I went from playing midfield my whole life. And then I got to the pros and I was outside back, center back, center mid. I played everywhere, Um, which I was really grateful for, like being exposed to all the different um, positions and learning. Um, But yeah, I actually actually look back on my stats and I played a lot of those seasons, um, which I'm really grateful for. I think like Orlando became home to me and I really like loved the community and loved representing them. Um, that's why it was hard to leave um, because ultimately they offered me another contract, but I really, really wanted to be pushed and be on a talented team that was going to, I was going to learn from their midfielders. So then that takes us into chapter two, where was it, a, was it technically a trade? How did, like, how did you end up from Orlando to, I always want to say Orlando rain, by the way, because it's OL rain, but it's, it's my right, grandma says it all the time. So it's like, <laughs> Shout out grandma. Yeah. Because uh, so it, it's Olympic Lyon, is it right? Is it a yes. partnership with them, yes. the French team, mm-hmm. the French league? Okay. So Orlando Pride to OL Reign, which is in Seattle. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, so I had been with Orlando for four seasons. Um, and by the end of the season, I was like, I'm just, I had hit like a mental block at Orlando. Um, and I felt like me developing as a person and a player, I wasn't reaching where I wanted to be. And I also was craving being closer to family and being on the West Coast. And at the time, they had an amazing head coach, Vladko, who's the national team coach now. So I wanted to be coached by him, too. So we actually were able to go through the trade. And I'm grateful. I had a great relationship with the coaches, and they completely understood. And thankfully, the GM did what's right by me and got me there. Um, So very grateful for that. Um, But I quickly got there, and there was Allie Long, Jess Fishlock, Roosevelt, like the best midfielders. So um, it was exactly where I wanted to be. And then, so I got... That was 2020, though. (laughs) So then before the pandemic. Okay. So like the business side of sport, like it Mm -hmm. sounds like in the... It's not the first time I've heard in in that league where... the, the front office really does work with the players to kind of get them where they want because in other leagues, that's not the case. Or is it, were there other situations and teams where, or players in the roster that didn't necessarily have a say? Yeah. So that was rare. Um, in my four years there, every year I'd come back, I'd bring less and less stuff. And it was really sad because you'd see like the setups of people's housing because you lived in your apartment. And then at the end of the year, you moved out. Like you didn't get to keep your apartment and then move into the same spot next year. So, like, I had seven different addresses over the seven years I've been in the league because I've never had that stability of, like, this is my home and this is my apartment. Um, So the more years that went by and the more teammates I saw just, like, traded out of nowhere, waved out of nowhere, like, I just stopped bringing more stuff. Like, it was hard to even invest in relationships because I'm like, I just made this best friend and then a week later she's gone. Um, I still did, thankfully, but didn't lose hope. Um, But, yeah, I was very lucky that I had a say in where I was going um, I was almost actually traded 
to North Carolina behind my back, but they accidentally messed up my contract so it didn't work. Um, so I, I say they had my best interest in mind. They did what's right by me, but it ended up, I had to push a lot and nudge a lot, and but it worked out. So then so t- two points I want to hit on. Maybe let's, let's talk on the first point. So are you advocating for your contract? You have an agent? Like how does that side of the business work for for you? Yeah. So when I was younger, I did not have an agent. And then when I knew I wanted to be traded, that's when I reached out to Tom Sermani and I said, Hey, like of the agents you've worked with, were there any you really loved working with? And he gave me my agent now. Um, and I went from, she just drastically changed my experience. Like things I didn't even know you could add to your contract. So Ever since then, when I come into a season, I, I'm sure to look out for younger players and kind of like act as that agent to them because I didn't have representation and you can be taken advantage of by the system. So I now try to do that for younger players. Um, and it's something I'm actually interested in post-playing just because there's so many players that don't have representation. Yes. Um, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to get an agent and I have the same agent now. So then how, so uh, like, and my understanding of agents in the men's leagues, let's just say like MLB, NBA, those contracts are very, very lucrative. Mm-hmm. And so the way the agents um, make their profit in addition to endorsements, they're allowed a percentage of the worth of the contract. Let's call it 2 to 4%. Given that NWSL contracts aren't nowhere near as lucrative as the multi-million dollar contracts that these are, how, does, how do agents get compensated in that space without taking away too much from your actual earnings? Yeah. Um, my agent actually represented a lot of male athletes and she started taking less male athletes and then would take on like 10 female athletes. So she would just completely decrease the amount we were paying her. And it was a flat rate um, in order to take on more of our cases. She was a, she um, played soccer as well. So really passionate about it. Um, and she's a really good agent. So, you know, when she's representing men in that space and give like bringing that same effort to us but just at a lower price and, you know, taking on more athletes. But what, I, I'm curious from your perspective, what makes a good agent? Mm. Like where, where do you find value in that relationship you have with your agent and from what you've noticed from either other, either other players transitioning from agents, yeah. right? Because that happens mm-hmm. quite a bit. Or you see players that, like yourself, stay with the agent for such a long time. As I said, I'm huge on connection and relationships. So um, the second I signed with her, she flew out to meet me. And every year she comes to at least two or three games, um, takes the time to meet me, brings her family around. So I feel like I really trust her and value her as a person. And she values me as a person. Um, So she always puts that first. Um, I think sometimes agents, when they're working for percentages, they might do what's best in their best interests. But I mean, it's a flat rate. So like she's getting whatever she's getting. So I know that she's working on behalf of me and what's best for me. Gotcha. Yeah. That's nice. I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear that there are more agents that are helping out that league because I didn't think there were at the time when I was in the league. There's not enough. Okay. Like she's one of the few agents and represents like a lot of a lot of women in the league. Good. So then earlier, right, you, you, yeah. when we were talking about this transition from chapter one, chapter two up to yeah. Seattle, you mentioned that there was a possibility of going to North Carolina. Yes. Right? So in that situation where you technically don't have control over, let's let's be real, your livelihood, your like where you're going in the world. Mm-hmm. Walk me through like the internal dialogue, the journey through that moment. Yeah. So my agent caught wind of it, let me know. And she's like, you've been traded there, but it wasn't the right contract. So in order to go there, you'd have to take a pay cut. So you have to actually approve it. And I did not want to go there. Um, I mean, everything was up in the air. I'm like, does the rain not want me? There was so much doubt and confusion and also like, 
what am I doing? And I can't believe they traded me behind my back and betrayal. But like, again, it's a business. So it's, that was really difficult to process. Um, yeah, but ultimately we sat down and I didn't agree to take the, the pay cut because I worked so hard to increase my pay. And then for them to just like cut it, I wasn't willing to do that. Yeah, yeah good for you. Yeah. Took a stand for yourself. Yeah. I mean, because right, like you worked hard. Yeah. You got at some, at some point you got to advocate for yourself too. Exactly. Right. And you got to go to the right situation. Yeah. I'm sure you wanted to be on the West Coast more so than I the did. East Coast. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that's, luckily you were able to, things worked out for you. Yeah, they did. Get out of Florida, get back to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. You went to Seattle in 2020. So start of the pandemic year. Okay. So let's, well, let's, let's transition to chapter two, where we go to Seattle. Yeah. What happens there and the life. And, and I haven't talked to anyone about the pandemic during the NWSL. Let's, let's go there. Well, first off, I was so excited to go to Seattle because I'm like, you go from being a rookie and you're there for four years. So you're starting to develop as like a veteran, consistent starter, but the people that have been there from the start still sometimes look at you as the rookie. Right. So I was so excited for a fresh start to bring who I had become to Seattle and, I loved the team, like talk about an incredible team culture. Um, I'm just so grateful I was a part of the, the rain during that time. Um, but yeah, I got there and preseason was going great. And out of nowhere, you know, the pandemic hit and they're like, okay, we need everyone to stay in market. No one can go anywhere. And then quickly, like a week later, okay, if you need to go home, you can go. Like it just got pretty bad and people were getting pretty scared. Um, and then a month later, they're like, they're, we're actually going to be the first sports team to return <laughs> and we're going to do a bubble. And we're like, wait, what? Like there was a lot of confusion. Like, is that really the most important thing right now? Um, I think people's safety is. And we ended up going to Montana because Washington was one of the strictest states. And so we went to Montana for a whole month before the bubble to train. So we were in a hotel for a whole month in Montana. And then we're in the bubble for another whole month in Utah. We're the only team that did that because everyone else was able to like continue to train in preseason. Um, so it was two months of living out of a hotel and the chaos of the world. So I had no idea you guys had to go to Montana. Yes. Okay. Which ultimately loved the experience because Montana is beautiful. Was it everything that you imagined through Yellowstone? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> it made me love Yellowstone even more. <laughs> I've yet to watch that show. Everyone keeps telling me You're about it. You're missing out. I heard. Yeah. I heard. So then, so you finished 2020 with yes. Seattle. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then two years of Seattle or one year of Just Seattle? two. Just two. So then 2021 Seattle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you were part of the expansion draft, right? Which a new, a new club comes in. All right. So walk us through, first off, like what is an expansion team? from a player's perspective and how that impacts the roster and the decisions that have to be made by coaches in front office, which then eventually trickles down yes. to what your situation was. So typically when an expansion team comes in, you're able to protect a certain amount of players and they do an expansion draft where they get to select players from every team, like people that are left unprotected. And there's rules, like you can only protect one national team player and however many players you want. However, this year, there was two expansion teams, so San Diego and L.A. So instead of being able to protect up to 14 players, I think we were only able to protect like seven or eight. And um, so I knew like I probably wasn't going to be protected because they're going to try to protect like the starting 11. And um, although I had started a majority of the games uh, towards the end of the season, I was coming in to the game. Um, and I kind of like... I wanted to go to San Diego or LA, but I didn't want to force it. because so I was like, everyone is going to want to go to these teams. And 
I'm not going to like throw myself at them. Like if they want to take me and they really value me as a player and it works out, then like, so be it. But if not, then like, I actually love the rain. Like I could have played at the rain for another four years and been so happy. Um, great club, great team, everything. Um, but the head coach came to me and she's like, if you, if they want to pick you up, like, I think it's an incredible opportunity for you. Like you always have a spot here, but just want you to know that. And so my agent reached out that they were interested. So we expressed interest in them and in LA. Um, and ultimately I didn't know up until the day of the expansion draft. Like I'm talking three minutes before they're about to announce their first pick, they called me. Um, so Angel City called me and told me they were taking me first. And I felt like I was being drafted out of college. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> dream come true. No, it was really cool. Cause it was interesting. My family was like, please, please, please take her. You know, like they wanted me to come home so bad. Um, and for them to take me first, I felt like really valued. And, um, so I couldn't be happier to take the opportunity. So you transitioned from Seattle yep. back to being home. Yep. You had a lot of family come to the games then? Every game. Like it was the first time in my career where I had a family member at every single game I played. My mom, dad came to literally everyone. Do you remember saying Graham's in some photos with you? Yes. Okay. Whereas like usually my, my dad only had seen me play once before. Okay. Seven years in the league and then, yeah, so pretty cool. So then with the expansion draft, mm -hmm. uh, something we were catching up about pre-show yeah. was more the expansion team, right? There's two arms. Mm -hmm. There's two arms to the expansion team, right? You have what you see on, the, on TV, yeah. the soccer, the product, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. The players, the coaches, you have what we call that, what, soccer ops. Yeah. And then you have the business side, mm -hmm. the marketing side, which from the outside looking in, you had a great set of owners coming in, a lot mm -hmm. of women driving that conversation, driving um, the direction of what y'all were doing. So let's talk kind of the ownership group that came in to really what, from, from looking at, looking from the outside in, they really elevated and like set, like set the bar for what a pro women's soccer team should be. Yeah. They did an incredible job. I think the model has always been, you know, one family comes in and buys a team and they were like, no, we're going to do it differently. They had four majority owners and then multiple investors, like hundreds. Um, and I think what I loved, it's people of all different disciplines. You had authors and actresses and entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And it was just a range of people. Um, and I, I mean, I was nervous because it was starstruck and Hollywood and that's very not me, you know. Um, so I was like, oh no, what is this going to be? Is this just like a show? And when I showed up and, you know, Jennifer Gardner greeted us and Glennon Doyle was at every game, like all starry-eyed at us. And they were just, it was so authentic and genuine. Um, and they led with wanting to make a difference. Um, and I think when you lead with that, authenticity comes out and you saw it in how involved our community was. Like we had the best fan base in the entire league in our first season. Um, so they just, they just did an incredible job. And then you guys were playing, where were you playing your games out of? At the bank. Okay. So the bank here in LA, the same class, same stadium as LAFC, right? Yes. So are, is there any, besides sharing a facility, is there any affiliation, right? So kind of like where the context mm -hmm. is coming from, there's some NBA teams um, that partner with the WNBA team and they share facilities or ownership group. Is there any affiliation between the two clubs? No affiliation. Okay. And I think that's what we loved is that we were able to bring in so many fans that we're genuinely fans of our team. And there's so much to do in LA. There's so many sports teams and they projected like maybe 10,000 average a, a game. You know, it's our first year, let's not be unrealistic. Maybe like one sellout in the home opener and there was four sellouts. Our average was 19,000. It only sits 22,000. Um, so it was just like, we knocked it out of the park. So I, ima and I imagine you probably had more 
attendance in some MLS clubs across oh, the yeah, country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. there's probably some clubs that average 10, 12, 14,000. Yeah. And y'all were in the high teens. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. How's the stadium? I've never been yet. Oh, it's unreal. I it's so cool. Like, it's, you know, some stadiums, there's like a big gap between the field and the stands, and or sometimes you're looking up, like, it's right on top of each other. And it, they've done an incredible job with it. Do you guys have a, uh, like, a, the, the supporter section? How wild and rowdy is that section? It's wild and rowdy. I think what I loved is this is the first time where I've looked up at fans and they're my age. Or it's just the most diverse group where it used to be like, you know, only like families and young girls, and which is my favorite part. But to have people my age supporting us and people from all different walks of life and different demographics. And I think you could see yourself in our team represented in the community, if that makes sense. So... Okay, yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. That's mm-hmm. really cool. I never, th- I never thought about that perspective yeah. of, right? Because Orlando was a very family-oriented yes. crowd yeah. mm-hmm. versus LA, probably young professionals. And I think I've learned that that's kind of the the avatar yeah. of mm-hmm. MLS too. I think the avatar of MLS fans is that young business professional mm-hmm. or the people that are transplanted and don't have a team to root for. They kind of rowdy around. Whereas soccer seems to be the team that. You know, if, you have, if you're a transplant and you move to a new city, I'm just going to root for the soccer team and then I'll stay true to my Chicago's, my New York's, my Boston's, whatever it may be. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was the highest compliment we got was that fans felt safe. Like it was the safest environment they had ever felt in any sporting atmosphere they'd ever been in, which was pretty cool. Like we made sure to celebrate people if they were LBGDQ or whatever they believed, like they felt safe and accepted to be there. And... I think that was like the highest compliment to receive as a club. For sure. So just uh, the safety is people being able to be themselves and true to who they are. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's actually really powerful. Yeah. I did not, I didn't even like, would not even consider that that would be even something you have to consider being a fan going to a game. Yeah. That fan expressed mm-hmm. that they didn't feel comfortable like holding hands with their significant other at like a baseball game or like maybe a different crowd. Like they have to change who they are to kind of fit the scenario, whereas they felt very authentic in who they were at our games. Um, and I think that just speaks so much more volumes in the sport. Yeah, the sport, but also like credit to the, like the ownership group yes. too for creating that space and also the branding that they did too. Yeah. So then the other arm of it is the mm-hmm. soccer op side. How yeah. was that experience? Because I've never been part of an expansion team, don't necessarily know everything that goes into has to build a soccer ops. I have an idea, but you lived it. Yeah. So what was it like? Let's just say if, like, if I wanted to be a part of that staff, support staff, and mm-hmm. from your perspective, what was that experience for those in this world? Yeah, it was um, the most experienced people in the soccer ops side were the players. And I think being an expansion team, it's, it's, it's so difficult. It's like you'll hit every bump possible. Um, and so I think we just had a lot of new faces and a lot of people that were new to the league and excited about it, but never had yet been through it. So there was a huge learning curve for a lot of the staff members and a lot of us trying to help kind of navigate the ship. Um, so I'd say it had a lot of bumps, um, but it caused our team to grow a lot closer together. So it's one of the positives that came from it. For someone that, like, that was, you know, ever has to have an opportunity to be a part of an expansion draft, mm-hmm. right? You've been through it. Yeah. What advice do you have for them going into it? I think the biggest thing, if I was in your position, is I would like utilize every contact I have. And so reach out to other teams and learn from them. Um, kind of get like the top things you need to do and what you need to bring to the table. Because I think they just kind of came in and were like winging it as they went. Um, rather than, you know, reaching out to other people and learning from them. Um, 
But that, that's a tricky question. I do think you have to have a really optimistic personality and be able to like roll with the punches um, and make the most out of situations. It can be like, for example, we didn't have the best setup for a gym. Instead of like, oh, we can't get into the gym. It's like, okay, we're going to get in the gym. It's going to um, cause us to stay here for an extra hour, but we're going to wait because this is really important. And, you know, we're going to make it work. You know, rather than, oh, we don't want to waste their time and have them sitting around and like, okay, just scratch the gym, you know? So I think make it work no matter what and be like strong in your conviction of like your, whatever your discipline is. I like it. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's zoom in on, or let's zoom back out and go, okay, you've been in the NWSL mm -hmm. seven seasons. Yeah. Three different teams. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have a wide variety of experiences. Yeah. In addition to Santa Clara, mm -hmm. okay, so all in 10 plus years, that's yeah. what I say. Okay, I've been with a lot of coaches, a lot of trainers, a lot mm -hmm. of therapists, okay. What makes those successful in that space working for the players? I think there's an element of getting to know each player when you're working with them. Um, no matter your role in the staff, I think you can't treat every single person the same. Like you can, but I think there's an element where you need to learn about them so you can build trust. I'm like, I think trust is so important, whether it be with teammates, staff members. For example, if I have a physical therapist, like if they're going to want to offer insight to me, I want to know that they, that I like trust them as a person, that they're making their best judgment for me, not for the coach because the coach wants them to like get me ready to be on the field or because they don't want to look bad if I'm not healing properly. Like I want them to think like what's best for her as a person. And I think we talked about this because I really valued what you wrote into my off-season program in terms of, you know, make sure you go hiking, make sure you spend time with your family, like all these important things. I, um, so yeah, like getting to know me like on a personal level. From a personal level, like how did, why is that important beyond the X's and O's of what they have to do? Because one thing you said to me before the show was, I want to be able to trust a person that has my livelihood in their hands. You have an injury yeah. and you have to trust someone to help you get back to the playing field because this is your career. This is the money you're making. Yes. Right. What is that experience like when you're trusting someone to help you get back to the field um, to do the thing that you love most? I think the biggest thing when you're having an injury or you're experiencing that is communicating how you feel. Like no matter how many credentials someone's has, they don't know how you're actually feeling. Um, so they can tell you this is what's going to heal it, this is what you need to do, but if you're not progressing in the same line or healing a certain way, um, then it'll never, you'll never make a good team and work together, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. Right, so for those that, you know, what advice would you have for me, right? New to the team, want to, I know my job is to help you get back on the field, you're coming off an injury, but I don't know you yet. Where have you found success in building those relationships? I think trust comes in, like, consistency. So, like, how you show up every day, um, will build trust, like knowing that you're always there. Because um, as we've talked about before, when you're a professional athlete and you're at this level, like you know what works for you. You have um, your rehab that's worked, your activation. Like you've kind of like found out what makes you your best. So um, when working with a new staff member, I think it's, it's almost that waiting game of like building that support, building that trust, um, consistently showing up. And then when you're able to offer that advice or they ask you for it, it's being there. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, like getting to know them as a person too, like, how are you? I, I personally love if someone asks like, oh, how's your family? How's this? Like to me that on a personal level, like shows how much they care about me as a person. Okay. 
Yeah. And so then your journey, like you had, how many, like you have any like major injuries throughout your career at all? I did when I was younger. Okay. But I haven't had major injuries like at the pro level. The one time I did, what did you say? I said, well, that's a good thing. I know, right? Um, I think the biggest one I had was my hamstring, but that was when I was playing in Australia. So then I was like kind of in this weird phase of transitioning back to NASL and I wasn't under anyone's like jurisdiction, so to speak. Okay, I got you. Yeah. So then one thing you said, one thing I've heard you say before Mm -hmm. is you sometimes learned more about the game and more as a player when you were injured versus when you were playing. Yeah. Why is that? I think for me when I was playing, when I was younger, I had a coach tell me, what makes you a great soccer player is because you're a great athlete. And it was a negative thing. He was like, you work so hard, you give everything, but you don't really understand the game. And it, I was younger then, so it didn't really click. And then when I got injured and I kind of was like, I'm going to make the most of the situation. I'm going to be an assistant coach. It was in high school. So I was assistant coach, taking notes, going over tactics, formations. And I just like immensely grew on like the tactical side of the game and the understanding. And I think it's easy when you're watching to be like, oh, I'll do this and this and so much easier to like, why would that player do that? Um, so I got to actually like take a step back from my on-field actions and like see how I can change when I got back into the game. And I like noticeably saw a difference. Okay. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that because we, from my perspective, always trying to keep the game a part of it. Yeah. Because when, when you are going through an injury or rehab case, like you are removed from the team at some level. Yeah. And like you kind of have to do things on the side. You maybe have to come in early, stay late. Right. So trying to incorporate the game is important. I've always felt that, but it was so interesting to hear you say that because it's almost like gives the credibility, like, Hey, like don't forget about the sport itself, but also it's an opportunity from your perspective to look at it through a different lens and learn different things. Yeah. And I think cause I had broke my sesamoid bone in my foot. So there's not like a clear path. So I didn't have a timeline. It was kind of this ambiguous, we don't, we'll just wait to see if it heals and there's no timeline on that. And then if not, maybe we'll do surgery or not. So I, I could be present because I didn't have this like timeline of like, and I, so I'd have anxiety around that. I just had to be, I was forced to be fully present and to like make the most of the situation. But it definitely made me a student of the game and like attracted to film and that really, and watch the game more. Like growing up, I never watched soccer. And so I finally was like forced to do it and then like fell in love with it. So during your rehab, during your rehab, during those times, yeah. like, right? Were you, 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 you're a very optimistic person. Yeah. You're very positive, right? How did you find your small wins throughout the process? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, everything in life comes back to being present in the moment. I think it's so easy to fall back into the past or go f- too far forward. Um, and I think being injured is a humbling experience because you have to be in the moment. Um, And so finding small wins just is like finding little things to celebrate. As athletes, we're perfectionists. We like having tasks and goals. And I think without that, um, it can feel overwhelming. So I think celebrating the small wins gives us like the small steps to feel like we're going towards something. What would be some examples of some of those like small wins, those small steps? I had knee surgery when I was younger. And I think like, it's so funny, but like even just like getting your leg fully straight or working on angle of how far you can bend it or like starting to see muscle come back in your in your quad, like little things like that. Um, or even like I walked today, I jogged today, you know, like those are like the little celebrations. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's important to find those because it also just makes you get through the day too. Yeah. Especially if you come and you are in pain, you are sore, you are hurting, yeah. or you haven't had an opportunity to do something in a long time, right? Finding those wins 
help you just get through the day. Like the question I always ask some players is, hey, like what's the one thing that we're going to do today that you can walk out of here being happy? Yeah. Right? Because then it snowballs. It snowballs and okay, the next thing and the next thing and the next. Yeah. I couldn't imagine because I haven't really, as I said, been really hurt at the pro level. But I see players that get injured and the amount of time they spend. It's like you said, they're there way before the team gets there. They're there way after. It's, I mean, you're you're doing everything except doing what you love, which is the fun part. Um, so with that perspective in mind, I'm sure to reach out to them and to make sure they feel valued and a part of the team because I think you do not feel a part of the team when you're injured. So I think that's a huge part of it. Like I... I say I haven't been majorly injured, but if I like sprained my ankle and I was out for a week or two, I'm sure to, I try to put myself in the environment, like around the team the most. So like a PT, like, okay, you need to do your bike workout. And I'll say, I'll do it after training. Cause I want to like be on the sideline. So that's my way of like feeling bought in and contributing as being able to like talk to players and coach where I can, or um, even just carry the waters because I don't know, it fulfills me to like still be a part of it rather than like biking alone in the shed. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't know if you've experienced that. Like, do our players allowed to watch training or do they have to just do the rehab on the side? No, so it's a great question. And we approach it in two different scenarios. So if they're going to be back quickly. Yeah. Yeah, like they're not doing any rehab during practice. Okay. Right, they are active. They're being on the sidelines, like whatever that may be, like you're there. We recently had a case where someone had ACL, ACL surgery out 12 to 14 months hey, just for logistics to give you the one-on-one -on -one care that you need rather than bring you in super early and bringing you in super late, like beyond what everybody else is doing, yeah. he, we would do rehab during practice. Yeah. So in the instances where there's a long chance of you being out, to give you the best quality of care and most efficient of your time, we would do stuff during practice. That makes sense. Because I do hear the perspective of being around it, but some of the guys are like, hey, like, I don't want to, like, I have to be, I would have stuff to be here early because I can't be showing up right when practice starts. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna have to watch practice and then I'm gonna have to stay two hours when everyone else is leaving. I think that was the most depressing for some of the, sometimes I was, was gonna say, yeah. You're going through rehab. Some of these guys are going through rehab, uh, some of these gals like throughout the career and you're staying two hours, like you're still working and everyone else is leaving. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how is like I'm hurt and I'm doing more work than they are, right? And it's a, it's a real situation that happens. Have you ever experienced that? No, but I, that makes sense. Like I, that's why I have that perspective of I want to be engaged and listen to what's happening at the team and be involved and be around them is because they've been like injuries where I'm going to be back soon. Whereas I think if I was out for the whole year and I was in the first month, going to training every day would have been maybe exhausting and really challenging to like sit and watch that knowing I'm not going to be back anytime soon. So I understand that completely. Yeah, and I think, mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious on your thought on this, is would you rather be out there just being a part of the team, but not knowing you're going to be out there for several months? Mm -hmm. Or would you rather kind of have that removed, not have that, not want to call it a distraction, but that reminder that you're not out there and be on the side? I think for me, I'm, I'm, a not, I'm not a very black and white thinker. So I'm very, I'm very much led by my intuition. So I'm like, what if I start by, I really need the team right now. And then a week happens and I'm like, you know what? I need space. And then a week happens. I'm like, you know what? I miss them. So I'm very much like going off like what I feel I need in the moment. Cause I think if I say like black or white, not going to see the team, but I'm like fighting this urge and like I'm missing something. So I, yeah, I guess I would say that I'm not very black or white in my thoughts. So that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Like, like I think it can change and I think it can Whatever, I'm, 
I think what also would make a good staff member is being able to adjust based off of those things. So not like I do things this way and we have to do it, you know, but I don't know. That, which is hard sometimes. Like you guys can't be led on how you feel when. I mean, you can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can because that's part of it, mm-hmm. right? The X is a no. It's a technical aspect. Yes, we have to do our tests and measures. Yes, there's research out there. Yes, there's evidence out there. Mm-hmm. But that's one component of it. Mm-hmm. Right? I think where I've grown most in this space, especially I'd say over the last couple of years, is really just understanding how complex the decision to play for an athlete is. Mm-hmm. Um, having more of those in-depth conversations with the athlete, given the role that I'm in now, um, I had that opportunity to do that because I don't think I fully appreciate it because there's so much that goes into that decision. It's not just the team, right? Is it a contract here? Who is the opponent? Am I going to my hometown? Hey, uh, the media is saying this, the media is saying that. Yeah. Right? There's so much that goes into it. That's that, a really good point. Right? So for to hear, I think asking those questions of, like you said, like what does the athlete feel is just as valuable because I've been in situations where everything checks out. Like you literally can't find anything clinically, imaging, orthopedically. Like there is nothing other than, hey, the athlete's saying, I still feel this. Like I still have this, right? And it kind of taps into some of the other psychosocial, somatic experiences that some athletes are having. But they're just as valuable, even if you can't measure it. Like conversation and perspective is just as valuable and emotion is just as valuable and important in that decision-making process to go back. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring that up because I've had situations like coming back from ankle injuries, you know, where they're like, okay, you're just doing warm up today. And then after the warm up, how's it feel? I'm like, good. And they're like, okay, do you want to try a passing? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, (laughs) (laughs) am I good to do it? Like, you know, you're leaning on them for that trust. And then they're kind of like, well, if you feel good, do you want to try this? And you're like, unsure, you know? So I totally understand that. So how do you navigate I kind of want to, let's go there because I'm curious, I'm curious where you go with that because that's something I deal with very regularly. It's like, hey, I have in my head what the progression should be, right? I have my head, this is where I think we should go, Yeah. right? And the question is like, hey, do you feel like you can do that? And like, hey, let's test the waters. So being a player that's gone through that situation, what do you think is best practice? It's tough because I've been in that situation where I'm like, oh, I feel so good. And I'm the one asking like, okay, can I do a little more? Um, and then sometimes they're like, okay, no, let's rein it back. I think I feel better when I'm the one prompting, like I'm ready for the next step rather than I just did the warm up and they're like, okay, can you do more? I think that is where there's a little reserve. If I'm not the one confidently being like, I want more. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes so sense. So if it comes from the trainer versus the athlete. So, I, hmm. so like, would you, you, ra- would you, would you rather, like, let me present this situation for okay. you. Right? You're going through rehab. Okay. And I present two options for you. It's like, hey, Dan, you're coming back from an ankle sprain. You've checked these boxes on the table, these boxes in the, in the weight room. Like, we're ready to do some stuff on the field. Yeah. Would you rather have options and be like, hey, option one is like we're taking two steps ahead. Okay. Option two is we're taking one step ahead. Option two is X, Y. Option one is Z. Mm-hmm. Right. Would you be more comfortable? Because then you're having, then you're making the choice yeah. rather than me saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Would that be a better approach given that you're a player that's going through that? Yes. I like options, but I also like feeling the autonomy of the decision, right? Yeah. So I think there's a way that you can prompt it that makes it feel like the athlete has control over it. <laughs> I think as athletes, we probably want a lot of control over what we do. How would you advise us that we approach those situations and those conversations with you? So it's tricky because when I, I keep thinking of my ankle injury, which I've done multiple times. So I feel like I have a really good understanding of it. But I think of when I had torn my hamstring and I had no knowledge of it. I've never had a muscle injury 
So I had no idea, like, what should I feel like? How should I? That that uncertainty was really hard. And I like really leaned on whoever was running my rehab and return to play to like be very strict on like what it was. So it is interesting when I've had an injury before and I understand the process, I'm a little more like, I guess, take autonomy for it. But when it's something I'm unknown about, then that's that it's harder to be like, do I keep pushing? Can I push? I'd rather just follow a plan. So that it's an interesting, that caught me up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like it, it's, it's a, it's never, like it's never black and white. Right, because like if it's a injury you've been before, we like I like to say, hey, if you've been through this before, you kind of know what to expect. Yes. If you've never been through it before, yeah, like we have to take this slow. We have to explain. We have to educate. But it was interesting hearing that perspective for you, like oh, like when it comes to an ankle sprain, it's kind of like, hey, Danny, you can write the rehab yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, almost where it's yeah. like, hey, hamstring injury. Oh, Danny's never done this before. Okay, we have to educate and explain and let her know, like, hey, you're okay doing this. Okay, not doing that. So I think you bring up such a good point. Which in those moments, I'm that person. I ask so many questions. And one, because I'm like, actually like learning about it. And it's really interesting. And if it happens again, I have all this education on it. Um, So, and I think that as a trainer, as a PT, like being confident and assertive in that, I think like I'll trust anything they say. It's when there's like a little hesitation or a little like, hmm, like that's where I'm like, it makes me feel like I'm not in good hands, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's almost like a mentality as well and, it's not like it's not fake until you make it, because that's like that, that's not the right that's not the right expression to say. But there is some level of um, like secondhand confidence. Like if I'm confident in what I do, you'll probably feel that. Well, absolutely. It's it's like your field. So like if you're confident in it, I fully trust that. So then looking ahead for yourself, um, well, let's just look ahead for the industry the, in sport, because we've talked about this too, where there have been struggles of getting high quality practitioners in your league, right? For those that do want to come into that space, what are the qualities of them that are going to make them successful? Yeah, I think we, we've spoken about it before of like the NWSL being a stepping stone or um, in some cases an opportunity for women that maybe didn't get an opportunity to be at like the MLS or um, so it gives them that, like a resume builder or, you know, um, sometimes people doing it for the first time. So I've had experience where I've had incredible PT and medical staff, and I have an experience where not so much. Um, so tools for them coming into our league of like what they need. I think they they need to be paid well. I think that that's huge. I mean, I think as an athlete, we advocate for what we're worth, but if we don't have the adequate um, resources to be taken care of, like I think they also need to be paid well. Um, and I think that's probably why people use our league as a stepping stone is they probably don't get paid well and they're working I mean, PTs and athletic trainers and medical staff, like I have the utmost respect for because you're working around the clock, whether that be with the athlete after building their program the next morning before training. So I think you get what you invest in and what you pay for. And I think that's why you've seen our level of soccer increase. Like the more you pay us, the more invested we become in our craft and we're able to. Like I'm no longer working um, after training coaching because my job like pays me enough now that I can actually do film after training or I can, you know, do the extra recovery and rehab rather than having to go out and have a second job. Like, so I think it all comes down to like investing in it when you want quality. So I think you'd have to pay them well to bring them in and yeah. And that's, and hopefully, and hopefully that does with the new CBA, the TV deals you got coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that does continue to bring up the standards so y'all can 
keep doing what you all, all do best and not have to work second jobs. Yeah. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> Uh, looking ahead a little bit long, a little bit further for yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like you've gotten involved with a few different organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with kind of, was it Football for Her? Mm-hmm. Football for Her. Tell us a little bit about that organization. Okay. Football for Her was started by Shauna Gordon. She used to play in our league. And um, she basically, when you, when you look at soccer for what it is in the root, it's everybody's game. So you can, it's in every country around the world, you throw a ball down and it brings everyone together. Um, but when you look at it, it starts to exclude girls. And then when you get to the America and you get to the club level, it starts to exclude girls of color. And so I think for me, I didn't realize it growing up, one, how fortunate I was that my family was able to pay for club um, because it was incredibly expensive. And I didn't realize how many of the girls looked exactly like me, even when you get to the pro level. Because, but when you look at the sport in and of itself, like, in LA, like the Hispanic population and Mexicans love soccer. And it's like, well, how are we not having them in the women's game? And so she brings up kind of getting everyone access to the game. And so she provides street soccer for girls in the community. And it's just, it's an incredible atmosphere. Every Friday, seven seven to nine, you show up and you just play pickup soccer. And I don't know about you, but like growing up, if I played pickup soccer, it was me and all men. So it was, there's something about being able to play with other women and having that confidence, getting to try new things. Like I didn't get to play pickup growing up. So I didn't, I think I was like typical U.S. system, like get the ball, connect. This is how you do, you know what I mean? Like very structured. Whereas I would have loved that opportunity, like to play pickup and try new things and um, not be afraid to fail. So it gives girls that safe space to get outside, play soccer. And I get that. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't, I didn't play much futsal growing up. Did, yeah. you, did you play futsal? No. Okay. Because I think that's like another opportunity to, like you said, play free, learn, get creative, fail, try some things. Yeah. The only time I played like free was at recess and like elementary school, middle school. Like it was just me like playing with like all the Mexicans and Hispanics of the community. Like I was the only white girl playing because we all would just play soccer at recess. And my family growing up, we'd go to Mexico every year. And so I didn't even think twice about it. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go play soccer, you know? Um, so, yeah, that memory means a lot to me. <laughs> okay. And then, so football for her, is it at a local organization out here? Yes. Okay, so then voice and sport is more national is what I'm kind of yes. understanding? To what, so, tell us a little bit more about voice and sport. Yeah, so they started right around the, right before the pandemic. So it's like an online platform that connects you to professional athletes or um, people in the professional field. So like you could talk to PTs or like um, psychologists or just anyone like in the professional space, but they noticed a drop off of young girls in sport. And they also noticed the power of sport in women's lives. So like whether you go on to be a professional athlete that's not the point. Like sport empowers women to be confident, to take chances, to advocate for themselves, to try new things, take risks, like all these incredible qualities that come from sport. And they noticed that so many girls were dropping out early and missing out on all the benefits. So they started Voice in Sport as this platform to basically try to get girls to stay in sport longer. And like one way to do that is through connecting them with mentors. Because all of us got to where we are with having a mentor. Like I'm sure you had someone in your life that helped you get to where you are. And I've had so many incredible mentors. So when this opportunity came up to be a mentor, I was like all about it. 
So then what is your role within Voice and Sport? Yeah, so I'm like, I'm considered a mentor. So I could go online and say, hey guys, I'm going to lead a session on my pregame meals, like jump on if you want to talk about it. So then I'll open up a session and it'll be like one or maybe like three kids or it can be a range. Um, and I'll just talk about like, what do you guys eat for you play a game? Or like, what do you guys struggle with? And sometimes like natural conversation happens, I prompt it, or they'll just ask like really great questions. And I just think as a kid, I would have loved that opportunity to like someone I look up to or even like a pro and like to talk to and get advice from. Um, and at the end of the day, like I just always try to reiterate, like believe in yourself. Like, don't compare yourself to other people. Like, focus on your own journey and it's, like, completely yours. Like, I try not to, like, put my, like, this is what you need to do to get to where I am. It's just, like, all about empowering them. What were some, what are some, like, the common questions you get fielded from? I'm curious, what, like, where, because how old are these girls? Like, probably asking these questions? I think it's, I think it's, like, 12 to all the way through college. Okay, so. Or might be 14, but I. Where is the teenage girls' questions? Where's their head at? What are they asking? There's so many questions about confidence and like, how do you get back after like doubting yourself or not believing in yourself? Or there's a lot of questions on that. Um, because I think people have this idea that once you have confidence and once you believe in yourself, it's like you've, you've reached it. But the way life is, is it's gonna be up and down and you just need to figure out when you have triggers of like, oh no, I'm like going down. I need to pick myself back up or maybe I'm too high. I need to bring myself back down. So it's like learning more about yourself so that you don't fall too much one in one direction. Um, but then I also get asked about like, like I've been injured. Like, how do I cope with this? I get asked that a lot. That's probably like the number one. Like I've been really struggling and I'm injured and, or I didn't make the top team. Like, so there's a lot of great questions. Well, how do you answer the question of you didn't make the top team or you're struggling through injury? So I actually was on the B team the majority of my club experience. I tore my meniscus when I was nine. Crazy. <laughs> Full bucket tear. Um, but, but I got put on the B team. And I was on the B team for like five or six years. And every year I was like, okay, this is going to be the year. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And coaches would be like, you need to go to a different club. Like, this isn't fair. And like parents would tell my dad, like, this isn't right. And my dad's like, if you want this, like, you have to work hard at it. And it's going to be so rewarding when you get it. And so when I finally made the A team and got named captain, which I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I'm just happy to be here. Um, No, like I, I learned so much from that experience and had so much autonomy from achieving something like that. So I always tell the girls there's so much to, you're exactly where you need to be. And there's a lot to learn from where you're at. Cause in being on the B team and getting new players every year, I learned how to bring people together and how to be a good teammate and how to like lead, which I don't think I would have got on the A team. It would have been like survival. And so I wouldn't have developed as a person as much. Um, so I just try to like, I share my story and try to remind them of that. And um, not to focus on other people's, like other people on the A team or all the things they're doing, just focus on yourself. It's such good advice. Yeah. Focus you on yourself. Yeah, you, oh, you, it's, you. that's the hardest thing. Because like, there's so much noise out there. Where you're, yeah. looking, you're looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that. Yeah. You know, you want to like, you want to do right. You want to do better, but you're trying to be present and do the things right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Tough. It's very tough. And so I think, I think you're giving great advice to those girls. They're lucky to have you. Thank you. All right, ready to wrap this up? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. These are one-word answers. Mm. Mm, on the spot. You ready for it? The success of a team all comes down to? Trust. Mm, okay. The key to successful rehab plan is? Personalized. Ooh, I like that. Finding small wins leads to? Joy. Mm, talk a little bit more about that. 
I just think when you look for the positive things in life and when you shift your perspective to focus on those things that you will find that ultimately you are happier and that you have more joy. Because I think it's easy to focus on the negative things and what you don't have and where you're not at. But the more you look at those little wins, the more you realize, wow, I'm really grateful and I have a lot of great things going. They add up to something big. Mm -hmm. Cool. One word that represents Danny. Rooted. Mm, where, where's that from? It's funny. I said that the chapter in my book was discovering and then I'm rooted because <laughs> I think I'm rooted in who I am and my purpose and what I believe in, but I'm, dis I'm still discovering and growing. And I think sometimes people don't think they go hand in hand, but I think that they can correlate and do a lot of good, I guess. I'll share an analogy that someone once shared with me. It's like, it's like a tree. Mm. Right? You are rooted, you are in place, but you're still growing up top. Mm, I like that. There you go. So you can you take that one. You said so much better than me. Uh, that can, the shout I out was can. trying to get a visual. I'm a very visual person. And yeah. the visual I was getting was really odd. I was just like wind and I'm just kidding. I like that. There you are. What about you? One word to describe you. Curious. Curious. Like I, I feel like you just live your life through curiosity. It just lends itself to so much more. Mm -hmm. Meet people, ask great questions, just go on adventures. You... Don't assume. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. You know, I think living, living life curiously is so much more enjoyable. Yeah. And lends itself to more opportunities. I agree. Can I ask you a few one-word questions? Of course. Should Actually, we it's not a one-word question. I'm just curious, like, who is your greatest mentor? That is a tough question. Because mm. you're going to, this person, people are going to hit me up like, I'm not your top, I'm not your top <laughs> mentor. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say where I grew most. Or just one of them, yeah. Okay, I would say where I, a time in life where I grew most was a guy named Bill Hartman out in Indiana, um, which is gracious enough to work with me as I was going through PT school, right? Because my journey through PT school was different than most. Mm -hmm. I, a lot of people go through PT school straight out of undergrad. Mm -hmm. So for me, I went undergrad, like at one school, played soccer there. And then I took a year off, coached with the Revs, was doing things there. And then I decided I want to go back to PT school. So I kind of came in with this knowledge base that the rest of the class didn't. And so the curriculum for me, it sometimes wasn't enough. And he was able to really just connect a lot of dots for me outside of school. So I think like from a mentorship perspective, he really just allowed me to act upon that curiosity because mm. I think my curiosity like got me in trouble a few times, asking too many questions or probably the way I asked the question, challenged the teacher and I wasn't yeah. trying to, you know? Yeah. So he gave me the space to be able to live, live that way. And it led me to where I am at now. And if you had one piece of advice for a PT in our league, what would you say? I think it comes down to like two words. Mm -hmm. I think like there's got to be a work ethic mm -hmm. because in, in your league, there is an underserved population and there's not a lot of resources. So I think the glam of working in pro sports, like, there's a glam of working in the NBA. I'll just call it like it's, there's a glam to it, right? There's resources are unlimited. You really get to do kind of anything that you set your mind to and your space in that league, there's not, right? So you're maybe one, two, three staff members for what, 20, 26 players, right? So I think they're like as simple as there has to be a work ethic and you have to show up knowing, hey, maybe 10% of my job today is going to be PT stuff, but I'm going to do a lot more to it. Mm. All right, so I think there's that. And then That's I think that so the, true. the advice I have for anyone that works in sports, and I think it's a struggle because we commit so much time to ourselves. Like I commit so much time to learn, to grow, to understand what I can do better. But when you get in a team environment, like 
you're one piece of the puzzle. And like you're a part of something so much bigger. So I think the earlier you can accept that you're a part of a bigger something, you, you always never be it, mm. that it will always be something bigger than you. And if you can accept that early, I think you'll be able to find more joy and success mm. and just recognizing, hey, what I'm doing matters and it's important and there's value to it. But also recognize there's probably 10 or 12 other facets of a sporting organization that are equally important and that also drive the success because it's not just me providing you rehab like some of the conversations we had earlier like it is hey like i've never been through this injury before right how do i manage the space hey i've got the coach telling me this hey i have my agent saying this i have the expectation for my teammates to come back like they're waiting for me to come back because like hey like i'm a starter and i need this so i, I think there's just so much more to to just doing the rehab, just doing the performance training, that accepting there's something bigger and taking that mindset, I think can help you out. So like instead of even treating the injury, like treating the player as a whole yeah. and the mental side as well. Treat the person, not the diagnosis. Mm, yeah. Right? Like, like consider it all because it's, it's, they're all intertwined whether you can see it or not. Mm. It's all intertwined. Like the amount of times my rehab has been dictated other than what's been on, like clinically on the table, it's, it's more often than not. Yeah, that's huge. Have you read The Four Agreements, by the way? Mm -hmm. Okay, because you said not to make assumptions, work ethic, and I was like, hmm. It's true. It's <laughs> I mean, I have, it's, been, it's been a minute since I read that book, and I was not quoting it verbatim, so I'll take... That's pat, good, yeah. Take a pat on the back for Just that Just become one. who you are. Yeah, you know, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, but yeah, what else you got? Any questions you have? Did you want to become a professional athlete? Of course. Okay, yeah, what did that look like? Like, what was the... The point when you're like, I'm not going to be a professional athlete. Were you jaded by it? Did you want to be in sports? Like, what was that like? So I played, got recruited to play Division One at Maine. Okay. Um, at the end of our season, uh, this was during the recession back in 2008, and in conjunction with Title IX and the recession and budget cuts, soccer was cut and women's volleyball was cut. And that was three weeks before the school year ended. So you're talking mid to end of April, we're just told, hey, there's no, there's no more team. Mm. So as you can imagine, in the recruiting cycle in Division One, all those slots are filled. Like all those commitments are made. So looking back at it, we were, what, there was, I think, maybe 16 of us that were basically, hey, where do we go? What do we do? Um, some people stayed. Some people transferred out. Um, most of us kind of just took what was given to me. So I, my journey was I ended up at a Division II school outside of Pittsburgh called Slippery Rock. Mm -hmm. um, my friends from home will never let me live that name down. <laughs> um, me either. So I went there, and it was a place I knew nothing about. I literally just took, okay, like this team had a, an availability. They were willing to take a chance on someone that they really didn't know as a recruit because they just felt for, for me, and it ended up not working out. Like I actually left before the first game. Got it. Because preseason, I was like, hey, you know what? It's not for me. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, like that journey, like that road bump for me kind of, I didn't never really got to live out the full college career. Mm. So, and I wasn't able to pursue at a level that I wanted it to, which is cool. I yeah. transitioned to coaching. Yeah. Uh, so then I transitioned to coaching soccer. I thought I was going to be a college coach. Yeah. I coached college for two years. And then uh, here I am just doing more on the performance and training side. Yeah. Yeah, pro soccer was where it was. I wanted to be that, man. Ronaldinho, man, I aspired that guy. Yeah. He plays with so much joy. I love that. Most Brazilians do. That was Marta. Like, every day, she was, at the end of, like, playing with her, she's like, I just hope you remember how much joy I had every day. And I was like, that's for sure. That woman had so much joy. <laughs> I love it. 
Uh, well, hey, this this kind of wraps things up for us. So this was fun. I'm glad you I'm glad you came down here, downtown LA. You drove down here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, it's just fun to see you. Thanks Catch for you. having me. I know it's been way too long. So cool. Appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Finding Small Wins. If you enjoy these conversations as much as I do, hit that subscribe button and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. To join our Finding Small Wins community, head over on to findingsmallwins.com. For more information about me and my journey, please follow me on social media at adam.loyacono. Thanks again for tuning in and remember, keep finding your small wins. Thank you.